How are y'all doing today? Awesome. I want to say welcome to anybody that is here in our room for the first time or if you're joining us online. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. This morning, we're going to be starting a new book, a new study in 1 John. And I'm really excited about this letter. It's a tiny little letter that's tucked away at the back of your Bible. And this letter was written by John the Apostle, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. At the time of writing this letter, it was likely that he was one of the only surviving members of the original 12 disciples. And really, he was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. You know, the Apostle John wrote five books that we have in the New Testament today. One of them, obviously, is the Gospel of John, and if you've never read that, do so, you will be blessed. The Gospel of John looks back at the past and the present realities of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He also wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which deal with our present. They deal with our today, how to live today. They teach us how to live now and to behave and to, excuse me, operate as the body of Christ. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation, which looks to the future, the future, and shows us how God will complete history in the return of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a Bible student, you know that John spent the twilight years of his life, the, the final years of his life, in around the area of Ephesus. And this letter that he wrote was not just to that church in Ephesus, but it was to all the churches in the Asia Minor area. And, and it's understood to be written between 80 and 85 A.D., It's interesting because as we go through this letter of 1 John, the perspective I want us to look at it with is to understand that the church at the time of the writing of this letter was now composed of second and third generation Christians, right? It's people that have gotten saved and then it was people that that had then gotten saved next. And then so we had these second and third generation of Christians that for some of them at the time were experiencing persecution and difficulty for the very first time in their lives due to their faith in Jesus. Others, however, had been walking with the Lord for a long time at this point and had suffered maybe many seasons of persecution of one kind or another. But for those that walk with Christ, that that excitement of that relationship, the thrill in that relationship was possibly diminishing a little bit. False teachers are infiltrating the churches, but they had been for decades at this point. And some of the Christians in the churches were starting to slack off on their Christian standards of living, to back off on their ethics of what sin is and how we should live. And it's all of this that the Apostle John steps into to address in this letter of 1 John. Now, he writes this letter with four purposes in mind. The first purpose is to combat false teachers who are infiltrating the church. You know, we just finished the, the book, uh, Letters of First and Second Peter, and he was addressing the same thing. And, and, and it's not new. It's still happening today. There are still false teachers trying to infiltrate the churches. And First John, John the Apostle uh, combats this by exposing their false doctrine, by promoting spiritual truth. And, you know, I love that about John. He was, he was not afraid to engage the culture of his time. And I think that's a great example for us as Christians today to, to, to not be obnoxious and, 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 and rude and unkind, but also don't be afraid to engage the culture that we live in. The second reason he wrote this letter is to deal with Christian ethics, specifically the attitudes and ethics towards sin, and then the necessity 
for Christians to love one another, the, the love that we're called to have for other believers. The third reason John writes this letter is obviously he has a pastoral heart. He wants to strengthen the Christians in their faith, strengthen them in their spiritual health, and, and, and really help encourage genuine fellowship, connection, community with each other and with Christ. And then he also had a personal reason for writing this letter, and we see it in 1 John 1, 4, where he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're a leader of any kind in a position where you're teaching truths and admonishing people in, in, in what to do or how to be, I think any of, any of those uh, situations take great joy, great joy, when they see those that are leading, those that they are leading or those that they are teaching start to grow and to get it and to blossom and to flourish. And I think that's exactly what John was hoping for with this letter. So looking at verses one through four this morning, uh, this is kind of the prologue to the letter. And so he jumps right into the deep end, right into the deep end. He doesn't wiggle in the stairs and you know dip a toe in. He jumps right into the deep end of doctrine and theology, defending the faith and the truth of Christianity and who Jesus is. And he does it by appealing to his own personal eyewitness, his own personal experience with Jesus. He appeals to what he says he and the other apostles heard, what they saw, what they touched and observed. And he says this truth, the truth I'm declaring to you about Jesus, this is the truth I'm declaring. And the reason is so that we would have true, lasting, effective, fruitful fellowship together as believers living in this world and fellowship with God himself. You know, our relationships with each other as believers, as family, they're intended to go far beyond surface level niceties. We're called to be connected, involved, participatory, um, participating in each other's lives and we benefit. We greatly benefit from real connection committed and growing relationship with one another. And all of that stems, that real connection with one another, all stems from the real connection, our committed and growing relationship that we each have with Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's open up in a time of praise. Let's open up in a time of worship to declare in this room, to declare online, to declare in your living rooms if you're watching from home to declare whoever's walking by, might be driving by, that we love Jesus. That he is our Lord and our Savior, the one who saved us, the one who's changed us, the one who's loved us in a way no one will ever do because he is God Almighty, amen? amen. Let's pray. Father God, oh, we thank you. We love you so much. Jesus, we know that you are God who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place for our sin. Lord, you were the only spotless, perfect sacrifice that, that, that would pay the price, pay the penalty for the sin of all mankind, Lord, and you did that for us because you love us. God, we're so grateful. We're so thankful for that, Lord. God, that you would save us individually and then you would, in that, call us into the family of God. And so, Lord, we know that we live in a world today just like John lived in and the apostles lived in and, and, and has been through all time, Lord, a world that, that, that doesn't want to believe in you, that wants to deny the reality of God and the truth of who Jesus is. 
God, we know that we live in a world today where even today in 2022, there's false teachers trying to introduce false doctrines about who Jesus Christ is. And Lord, we know the truth of who you are matters so much because it affects everything you did and what that means for us. So Lord, today we want to be spoken to by you. We invite you to challenge us and correct us if we need it. Lord, we invite your spirit to rebuke us if we need it. God, we, we want you to encourage us. Lord, we're asking that you would bless us, Lord. As our Father in heaven, as God Almighty, the one who loves us and who came to this earth as God the Son to die for our sins. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, as I said, we're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 1. I want to read these first four verses and then we'll uh, walk through and learn what, what God has to teach us. 1 John 1, chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, we ask you just bless us this morning. Speak through your word. Encourage us, God that we would grow closer to you, and in that, grow closer to one another, and in that, God, shine the light of the gospel to a world that desperately needs hope. We love you so much, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in those verses, although John doesn't specifically mention the name Jesus until verse three, it's very clearly speaking of Christ through this entire prologue to this letter. He tells us that Jesus was from the beginning. He tells us that Jesus is the word of life revealed. He tells us that Jesus was with the Father, but not the Father. So when he uses that word beginning, what beginning is John referring to here? It's the same exact Greek word that John uses in his gospel. In John chapter one, verse one, where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then, of course, in John 1, verse 14, we learn that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that he's talking about Jesus Christ. But what is John referring to by using the word beginning? Is he referring to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry? Is he referring to the beginning of creation? What exactly is he referring to? Well, this word beginning literally means origin or foundation um, it's the concept of foundation of all things. It also means the initial starting point. And it's most often used in scripture in reference to time, the beginning of time, the starting of time, the origin of time. And so what it's saying here is the beginning that he's referring to is before creation, before time, before history, before anything. And what John is establishing right in the beginning of his letter is before anything, Jesus was there. Jesus existed. Verse three, he says, we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. 
That word eternal there is very important. It means without end. So when you take that word eternal and you couple it that it says that eternal life was with the Father, he's saying the same thing that he said in John 1.1, that the word was with God. Now these statements, right off the bat, establish the eternal pre-existence and forever post-existence of Jesus Christ. Jesus' existence didn't begin with his birth in Bethlehem. He was not created like the angels before creation. He was not a created being before um, the heavens and the earth or created after the heavens and earth was created. What John is telling us here is that Jesus existed before all things. Jesus existed before time, before creation, before it all, and he's eternal. He always will. This is who Jesus is. This concept is part of where we get our understanding of the Godhead or what we refer to as the Trinity. This is a concept that is refuted by some, and the biggest argument that I've run up against to, that people say the Trinity is not in the Bible is they say because the word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible. Well, if we're gonna say that because certain words don't exist in the Bible, therefore they don't exist, well, there's a whole lot of problem with that type of thinking. There's such a thing as explicit truth and implicit truth. Explicit truth is, look, it literally, it says this. This is explicit. It very clearly spells this out. Implicit truth are truths that we surmise, we gather, because, well, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then we surmise that this must also be true. That's implicit truth. No, the, the word Trinity doesn't exist in Scripture. The Trinity, I believe, is very implicitly taught throughout the pages of Scripture, and this is one of those places. When he says that the word was with God in John 1.1, 1, 1, that word with in the original language carries the idea of, a, of being face to face with someone else, right? Face to face with someone else. John 1.1, 1, 1, he says the word was with God. But then right after that, he goes, and the word was God. Jesus always has been is presently and will always be God. That is what the Bible teaches. Not in the place of the Father or the Holy Spirit. Also, not the Father or the Holy Spirit. He doesn't exist only within a chronological sense in time, as in Jesus, God the Son, only existed when Jesus was here on earth. But Jesus is preexistently and eternally God. Why? Because he is from the beginning and he is eternal. Now getting this wrong is to deny the biblically taught personhood of the Father and the Son. It's to deny that there are two distinct persons of the Trinity. It's to fall into a doctrinal error that was once called modalism. Modalism today is called oneness theology. Modalism or oneness theology said God appears in three different ways, but he never appears as two or three at the same time. He can't. 
Modalism said that God is either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, but can't be all three at the same time, and that's why they deny the Trinity in this type of thinking. Now, modalism was a heresy of the early church. It was taught in the early church. It was eventually dealt with and stamped out, but it popped back up in the early 1900s and has got a lot of followers in today's world. But John's focus here, in in opening his letter this way, he says, this preexistent eternal God, we saw him, we heard him, we, we looked at him, we touched him, we, we handled him. This is what John is establishing here. Now, why is he using such comprehensive, descriptive terms in, in, in deta- detailing his interaction with Jesus? Well, I believe the answer was at the time of this letter, there was a new and growing philosophy that was gaining ground towards the end of the first century. And this new philosophy was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, all right? So, so you know, the whole concept of knowledge was that, 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 that there was people who, who claimed to have special secret knowledge of Jesus. Like if you were a Gnostic, you knew the real truths. You had the secret, you know, you, the secret handshake and the secret knowledge and in our secret book. And, and, but you had to become part of us. Yeah, it was good to have the Bible, but you had to, you know, be part of us to get the real secret knowledge about God and salvation and who Jesus was. And the problem is that Gnosticism was essentially a combination of pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy. And it was trying to replace the truths of what was taught. Now the two main principles that characterized Gnosticism were that salvation could only be gained through this super secret knowledge, right? You can only really be saved by getting the knowledge from people in the know. It wasn't generally available. And the second thing um, was that all matter was evil. All matter, all physical matter was evil. But the spirit was inherently good, and therefore your physical body is inherently evil, but, but your spirit is inherently good. And this led to two major doctrinal errors, which is why I believe John just right out the gate is going, let's deal with the heavy doctrine of who Jesus is. Because the first doctrinal error that this, this philosophy in the early days of the church was introducing, um, well, the first one was practical errors. It was, it was errors. Gnostic teaching led to errors in how Christians lived their lives how they behaved. It affected their ethic on what sin was and how a Christian should relate to that. Typically, there was two extremes in this. One of them was called asceticism, where one would punish their body or deny their body physical things that God didn't deny, right? They were like, oh no, you can't, you can't drink coffee and be a believer. I mean, you need to deny that, right? But they went so far in ascetic thinking to say, look, in order to free the spirit, in order to, to, to hold down this evil body and free the spirit, married couples couldn't even engage in, in, in intimacy together because it was just an evil act. Then you had the other extreme, which was licentiousness. That simply means an extreme lack of and a disregard for any moral restraint. Since the body's evil, it doesn't matter what the body does because it's going to perish anyways, but the spirit is inherently good, so you're going to go to heaven. So do all the drugs you want, sleep around all you want, live, be, do, however you want to be. It doesn't matter what the body does because it's just inherently evil. But, but the spirit's good. Today's version of that thinking, you know, God loves everybody, wouldn't send anybody to hell. So it doesn't matter how you live. God loves you. And so their idea is that if the physical body was just simply evil and will die regardless, then who cares what you do? 
Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Gnosticism is alive and well today. Nobody calls it Gnosticism because that's kind of a weird ancient word, but it's alive and well, and we see it around the world today. Nobody calls it that, but John, here he's fighting against these, these false spiritual philosophies that are trying to creep into the Christian churches of his time and warn them in the dangers of Gnosticism. It leads to errors in practical living. The other error that Gnosticism led to was doctrinal error, and the big doctrinal error that it led to was who Jesus was, the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, in this one, there was kind of two camps. You had one called docetic Gnosticism, Docetic Gnosticism said this, if the body, being physical matter, is inherently evil, and God is perfectly good, then there is no way a perfectly good God could have dwelt within a physical body because God cannot be associated with evil. And so their conclusion was that God didn't become a literal human person. He didn't have a literal literal physical body. Yes, Jesus was from God, But if you were to walk over to Jesus and reach out to shake his hand, he's like a ghost, right? It would just pass right through. That's what this line of thinking taught. So what docetic Gnostics were denying was the incarnation of Jesus, God being born in the flesh. And if God wasn't really born in the flesh, well, then there's a lot that Scripture teaches about him that is then false, you know, because he was here as a man to fully identify with us and so on and so on and so on. So John, in these first four verses, he's like, look, these guys are denying the bodily incarnation of Jesus. They're lying to you about who he is, but I was there. What they're denying, I experienced personally. I shook his hand. I touched him. I handled him. We observed him. I saw him. I heard him. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt his body was real because I was with him. And then the second doctrinal error of this Gnostic teaching is this thing called Serinthian Gnosticism. Um, that's just the name of the dude that, that pushed this philosophy. And so they went, since all matter is evil, and therefore the physical body is evil, and the spirit is therefore good, well, if Jesus did indeed have a physical body, then he had to have been just an ordinary human, not God in the flesh. That was Serinthian Gnosticism. So they're like, you know, Mary was his mother, yeah, but Joseph was really his father. He wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then they, they, this type of thinking, they go, now at his baptism, the Holy Spirit fell upon him and changed him into a good being for a temporary amount of time, but, but his physical body was still evil. So he did these wonderful ministries for about three years, you know, but when he died on the cross, since God cannot be associated with evil, and you say he became sin on the, well, well, the Holy Spirit left him, and so when he died on the cross, he just died as a human. Well, again, that, that, that denies the atonement. Because if Jesus was just a human and just simply bodily died on the cross as a human, well, the Bible says that all humans are flawed, sinful creatures, and so a flawed, sinful sacrifice couldn't satiate the wrath of God against sin. So there's all these problems that come up with this type of thing. Now these two doctrinal denials, I believe, primarily are what John's addressing in this letter. That one, God didn't have a real body, or two, he did have a real body, but he wasn't really God, except for this time when when the Holy Spirit kind of puppeted him around. So they deny the incarnation and they deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Well, the Bible is clear. Jesus is 
real. Jesus was real. Jesus is the eternally pre-existent God. Jesus was born as a real human with a real physical body that John saw, John touched. Jesus, God from the beginning of all things, the word of life that was with God and is God, came to this earth 2,000 years ago, was born as a man, born from a virgin, into this world with a human physical body. He was fully God and fully man simultaneously. He came to live as a man so that he could fully identify with us, that that he could say, I've been tempted in every way you've been tempted to fully identify with our struggles, to be the example for us on how to live and how to glorify God in heaven, and ultimately to die in our place as a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice so that you and I could be forgiven You and I could have our relationship restored with God. And then he rose again from the dead, bodily, right? You go back into the gospels and you read Jesus appeared and they're like, whoa, is it a ghost? Is it Jesus? And he's like, bros, here, put your touch. You know, I'm here. And they all experienced that. And then he ascended back to heaven in their eyesight to intercede for us evermore. Pre-existently existed, existed while he was here on earth, and eternally exists. Jesus was God in the flesh. But he wasn't God leaving heaven, and, oh, the Father is now manifested as the Son. No, the Father was still in heaven when Jesus was here on earth. The Bible's clear. This is the Jesus John wants to introduce us to. This is the Jesus John wants to introduce his readers to. Twice he says, we heard him, right? Perceived by the sense of hearing. Three times he says, we've seen him. Perceived by the sense of sight. Once he says, we observed him, right? That word observed is different than seen. Seen is like, oh, I see you. Observed means that you, you got close and you analyzed and you examined something as, as, as something unique and unusual, Once he says, we touched him with our hands, perceived Jesus by the sense of touch. And then twice he goes, this is what we're declaring to you. This is what we declare to you. And it was all meant, in my opinion, but I believe this is what he's saying here, and and I'll, I'll fight you on this one, okay? It was meant to establish the historicity. This is what the word of God teaches, the historicity of the pre-existent, eternal son of God, second member of the triune Godhead, being here physically in the flesh for a time. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And then John's also wanting to introduce us to this Jesus and say what he says to, to establish his authority as an eyewitness to the life and death of Jesus Christ. Now, one of John's favorite descriptors for Jesus is word. He calls him the word, right? That word is logos in the Greek. In John 1.1, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, as John was writing, he says, and his name is called the word of God. And then of course here in 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 he calls him the word of life. It's one of John's favorite words to describe Jesus, right? The Greek word logos. Now, in ancient Greek philosophy, 
they defined this, this phrase logos, this term, as the transcendent idea that reason brings order to the universe. Logos, words, speaking, like utterance, right? And so, so Greek philosophers was like, logos, it, it encapsulates this idea that reason brings order to the universe. And so when John uses that word logos to describe Jesus, he's making a very, very clear claim. The first claim is that Jesus, as the word, is himself the reason. And by his speech, brought order to creation. Our physical laws in the universe are are examples of this, right? These physical laws we have that imposed order on the chaos, right? You got the law of gravity, right? It used to be kids would want to test that one and make some cardboard wings and jump off the roof. Then they would learn, oh, gravity's real, right? You know, you hit something with your car and you learn different physical laws. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it, Jesus created this. Colossians talks about this, that he is the creator of all things. All things in and through him were created, both the visible and the invisible. He is God. But in, in applying this word logos to Jesus, the one who, who is the very reason, the very utterance, the very, the very point of origin of the effect of everything being ordered in creation, John's also tying him back to Genesis 1, where it's recorded that God spoke and all of creation materialized into an ordered cosmos. I believe the second reason that John's using this word is he's claiming that the word the Logos isn't just a transcendent idea. The Logos is a personal, relational deity who wants to know you and have a relationship with you. Now, we can go a whole lot deeper into that, but we're not studying John 1. We're studying 1 John. So we're going to switch back to 1 John here and look at this phrase, word of life, is how John describes him here, the word of life. Not only is Jesus the reason, that brought order to chaos. Not only is Jesus the word that brought order to the universe, he is the reason. And by his word, we can have life, is what John is getting at here in 1 John. Again, in John's gospel, chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus, the story there we read about him and Lazarus where he was coming to raise his friend from the dead, to bring life to the dead. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so John is reflecting back to that as he calls him the word of life. Now look at verse two. It says, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So John is like, look, this preexistent, this this eternal life, his life, God the Son, creator of all, was revealed to us. The word revealed both times in these four verses means to become visible, to become disclosed, to be made clear, or to be made understandable. So what John is saying is is, is that God became man, God clothed himself, he became flesh to make himself clear to us, to make himself understandable to us, to to come to us in a way that we'd be able to relate to. John, again, is emphasizing the incarnation here. The Bible tells us that he is Emmanuel, God with us, which is what Jesus 
is, was, right? God with us. And he's emphasizing how God made salvation known to us by literally becoming the offering for us on the altar. And he did this so people could understand, so people could clearly get it, that eternal life is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Eternal life, salvation, is wrapped up in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Not Jesus plus baptism. Not Jesus plus this uh, phrase or saying. Not Jesus plus, you know, saying your kumbayas three times a week. Not Jesus plus. Jesus alone. Every lesson that was taught by Jesus. Every miracle performed. Every act of grace. Every gentle touch. Every work of kindness. Every word of wisdom. All of it formed part of God's gracious manifestation of himself to us through words and actions that we could all understand. That was God revealed to us in Jesus. Now John here, in these, in these first four verses, and in through his whole letter that we'll be looking at, he says he's declaring, he's testifying, He's proclaiming an important truth. This is who Jesus is, and he is the one that brings forgiveness of sins and eternal life. For every believer, every believer, God's life dwells within us. We have God's life dwelling within us, and Jesus Christ, he's the solution to the problem of how sinful people ever know God and be made right with him because he is so perfectly holy and so perfectly just and we are so perfectly not. And how do you reconcile these two things? The answer, Jesus Christ. The yawning chasm between God's holiness and my sinfulness is bridged by the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, praise God. So John is like, this is the Jesus that I saw and heard many years ago at this point. I speculate that it was just as vivid in John's mind as it was when it happened because it changed everything. He said, this is the Jesus I've been declaring, this is the Jesus I will continue to declare and don't deviate from this because this is who Jesus is and it matters for everything. So verse three, he says, what we have seen and what we have heard, we declare, also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So there he gives us the reason. Why is John writing this letter? Why is he starting out with these heavy things? Why is he gonna deal with just such amazing doctrinal truths and foundational, um, foundational doctrines to our faith through this letter? Why? So that we may also have fellowship together and fellowship with God himself. The reason for his emphatic stance, the reason he is so dogmatic on this is so that we would be united so that we would have this fellowship. He says fellowship with us and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He uses the word fellowship four times just in this short first chapter. So it's kind of an important thing for him. Now that word fellowship, it's the Greek word koinonia. 
And this Greek word koinonia describes something very special, very unique to the body of Christ. In many ways, our culture today um, perpetuates and promotes a me-first mentality. That's, that's, it's common in our culture today. Everything from the idea of do what makes you happy, live your truth, to just the pervasive world of selfies and TikTok videos of us doing whatever latest dance trend is flying around TikTok, right? Look at me, you know? And it's just, it's just part of the culture we live in. But the fruit of that is that decision-making for, for many, not everybody, but decision-making for many largely ends up reflecting our own interests and our own individual freedoms over those of any group, over those of any government, over really, in many ways, over any church or community of believers. Now, while Christianity does indeed value the individual, absolutely, it consistently urges us to put God first, others second, and then ourselves. Over and over, the Bible urges that. Christianity was not meant to be lived in a self-dependent silo, right? There was people that one day had that idea, I'm just gonna go away and live for Jesus, and they were called monks, and they would go and find a big tall mountain to live on, just me and Jesus. I don't know how much evangelism to the squirrels and the birds happened up there, but I mean, it's, it's hard to you know, live the one and other verses of scripture on your own. Not to say there might not be times in our lives where God wants us to get away, sure, but, but, the, but the general sense is we were meant to be together. You know, the church was established with Christ as the head and, and, and us, the people, as the body. We are the body of Christ who are commissioned as disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. We're called to go out and to share the gospel, to share the hope that is within us and to see people get saved and then interact with those people because they're now our family. We are connected and joined with them and this is the concept of fellowship. Koinonia is, is, is tied up in all of that. But the challenge with this word koinonia is there's, there's no exact English translation for the word koinonia. No exact translation, it, but it, it, it's associated with the concepts of, of, of a holy covenantal fellowship. One Bible dic- dictionary put it this way. Koinonia is, is association, community, communion, joint participation with one another. The origin of the word koinonia comes from another Greek word, koinonos. Koinonos means to partner, to share, to be a companion, right? So koinonos means that, and then you got koinonia, which carries it further into these ideas of connection. And so biblical fellowship, it's a, it's a, it's a shared community that involves deep, close-knit participation among its people. Koinonia goes far beyond what the English word fellowship means. This is why I'm taking time to explain this, right? Because the English word uh, fellowship, if you look that up in the dictionary, the definition is friendly association. That's what the English word fellowship means. That indicates a casual, surface level, kind of friendly relationship. We might use the word acquaintance, right? But koinonia goes far beyond that. Koinonia is full, intimate unity. It's more than just 
casual friendship. It's just more than just friendly association. It's, it's, it's a divinely intimate, holy unity from believer to believer and from believer to God. That's what koinonia is. It involves everything from our as the body of Christ being one united under the Holy Spirit, that the same Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, we'll get into that some other time, it dwells within every believer and we are united in that. It involves the concept of, of community life, being plugged in with one another, sharing with one another in, in everything from, from our finances to, to goods to, to, to our needs to bearing one another's burdens, living life together, supporting one another. This is all wrapped up in koinonia, and we first see this word koinonia used in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter and the other believers, the other apostles there, they had been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they all started speaking in other languages, and the Jews that were there watching were really rattled by this, you know? They were really confused and said, you know, they must all be drunk. You know, and Peter's like, bro, it's the morning time. We're not drunk. And then he goes on to preach this amazing sermon, and it tells us in Acts chapter 2, from that sermon, 3,000 souls got saved. 3,000 people got saved. And, and then after that, it says, they then went on to make this public profession of their conversion by getting baptized that very same day. Man, imagine that. Like, like we're going to have a handful in a couple weeks, but imagine 3,000, Right? That would be awesome to see. It would be a very long day, but it would be awesome to see, right? And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as these people got saved and got baptized, they were plugged into the community, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, which is koinonia, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then this passage goes on to paint this a uh, bigger picture of what, what Koinonia looked like in their time. Verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed to the apostles. Now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. At this time, the need was, and it says what they did there in verse 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, that's not teaching socialism. It's not telling us right today to go sell everything you got. The concept was is that they put others' needs above their own. And so they're like, if I have something, you know, and I don't need this big house and I could downsize to help my brothers and sisters in need, they did that. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. How beautiful, how wonderful. Later on, Gentiles began hearing the gospel and they began getting saved. And then koinonia was used to include them in the family of God. This was a big deal because at the time, Jews and Gentiles, they didn't mingle. They didn't have nice things to say about each other, but Christ was at work in the saved Jews and the saved Gentiles. Christ was at work through the Holy Spirit, allowing these two separate groups of people to tear down their former walls of division and become as one. Paul wrote about this when he wrote to um, the Ephesian church about God's secret plan and all this, and he calls it a mystery. Ephesians chapter three, verse three. The mystery 
was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading, by reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs. Hallelujah, I'm a Gentile. Thanks for including me. They are members of the same body. They are partners in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Intimate connection. Koinonia. True biblical fellowship. We also see this many become one concept in communion when we celebrate communion together, right? We come together to remember what Jesus did for us and it was at the Last Supper where Jesus offered the bread as his own body and he says, this is given for you, right? My body is literally being given for you to, to meet your need. Then he offered the wine as his blood and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Right? It's the ultimate holy unity. Him sharing with us his righteousness and him sharing in our burden, dying in our place, ultimately putting the need of others far above his own. Ultimate example of koinonia, deep communion and fellowship. Now koinonia is vitally important to the Christian life. Vitally important to the Christian life because of what it is, what it represents, and what it means. And John is over here writing this letter to fight this battle, to fight against false doctrine, to say, no, we are not gonna relent. We are not gonna yield on the truth of who Jesus is because it matters. And I'm doing this because I want you to have fellowship together as the body of Christ, united under him and who he is, and your fellowship with him to be solid and, and committed and, and without wavering. The heart of the gospel says that Jesus is the way to eternal life. And if we repent of our sins, we believe that he is who he is and he did what he did and we receive that, then we should follow and obey his commands. Right, in Matthew 22, Jesus summarized all of it. He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor as your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's a belief and acceptance that, that we're all in this together we're all part of the body of Christ. And so John, knowing the, the depth, the effect, the fruit, the encouragement of such fellowship wants nothing more than for his, his audience to be united together, to be changed by, to be motivated by the truth of who Jesus is and what it means when we enter into a saving relationship with him. And so verse four, he concludes, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I believe it was a very special blessing to John. I believe it was a very special blessing to the other apostles when, when in their ministry and in their living for Jesus and declaring him, when they saw other people come to know Jesus Christ and Savior. People people that had never seen Jesus or walked with Jesus, but the truth of who he was changed their lives. They, 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 they started living radically changed lives. They started loving one another in ways the world couldn't understand. They, they, they were living as family, bonded together by something infinitely more powerful than biological lineage. 
They were generous in giving and supporting one another and serving one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another in, 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 in all the moments of life. And they did this because they were healed and they were restored and they were renewed and set free by the power of God. And so they worshiped together, not just in the temple, congregationally, but from home to home, in smaller community groups, praising God together, declaring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You might have heard before the acronym JOY, right? He says that we're doing this, that our joy would be complete. Jesus, others, you, right? That's a great thing to live by. Our joy is made complete when Jesus is our first and number one priority. But that joy continues when others, when we put others before ourselves, when we, when we strive to, to live life with one another and meet their needs and walk along with them and celebrate the good times and, and support them in the bad times and all of that. And then, of course, you is at the end of that equation because I think when we put God first and we put others first, God takes care of us. This is what I want for you, Hosanna. This is what I want for you in this church, whether you're here physically or online. This is my prayer for all of us, that our fellowship, our koinonia would grow and that it would just become this blazing light of the gospel that the world can't, uh, they can't even hide their eyes from. That our joy may be complete. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited uh, for our community group ministry that's coming up. You know, I know some of you have questions. What's going on? Why are we doing this or that? God gave me a vision a while ago, and I really believe that it's in these community groups that God wants to reignite this passion for one another. That, that, that the body of Christ isn't just about, well, I show up once a week, I sing some songs, I hear some preaching, I go home, and I never connect with anybody that's in my family here at my church but the opposite. That throughout the week, we have opportunity to plug in with a, with, a, with a group here. And that they know you and you know them and it's all the good times and bad times. You work all together, pointing each other to Jesus the whole time. And then we come back together here on Sunday morning and everybody says, hallelujah, let me tell you what's going on in my life. And I really believe God's gonna do a great work so I'm excited for you guys. I'm excited for our community groups. I'm excited for our gathering here on Sunday. I'm just excited, guys. Praise God. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we love you. God, we know that, that, that you came to this earth. That you became flesh and dwelt among us. God, you did that to, to just in a, in a more clear and understandable way communicate to us who you are, the relationship you want to have with us, Lord. The desire, the walk. God, you came to demonstrate salvation, that, that it's in you and only you. There's nothing we could do to earn it. You came to demonstrate, God, how much you love us, Lord, that you could change us and set us free from the sin that so easily besets us, God, that we would be set free from the control of sin to live a life of, of, of love. 
to live a full life, God, that, that is different than, than anything the world can imagine because it is indeed supernatural because it's a work of you. God, thank you so much. We thank you, God, that you're here with us, that, 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 that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God, the Holy Spirit, to, to, to counsel us, to guide us, to direct us, to mold us and to shape us. But Lord, we know that you're here in the world as a spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And we as your body are a part of that work. We are your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your, your joints. We're, we're, we're the body, Lord, to go out into this world and to share the truth of the gospel, to share the warning of judgment, but to share the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we be people who, who dogmatically defend true doctrine and stand against false doctrine. But Lord, not to just become characterized as, as, as crusaders of truth in that sense, Lord. Lord, that we would fight for truth and defend truth and, and stand on truth, but in that, Lord, to have that, that, that heart you had, Lord, that kindness, that gentleness, Lord, all the fruits of the Spirit in our life, Lord, that people would know that we warn because we love. That, Lord, we've experienced the salvation and we just want them to experience the same thing, God, because it changed our lives and we know it'll change theirs. So God, thank you. We love you. Be glorified in our lives, God. Help us to do and be what you're calling us to be, Lord. Help us to have that koinonia with one another, Lord, to, to really step out, Lord, because, Lord, for many of us, and Lord, I even know in myself included, it's to, to step out and to open up your life and invites a, 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 a vulnerability that, that may be uncomfortable, Lord. But we're called to live life together. We're called to support one another in this living of, of, of Christianity, our faith, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to, to build in our lives, Lord, a hunger, a love for the word of God because it is the truth. Lord, a love for you that we would put you first in all things in our lives and that through that, God, then we would then, then endeavor to put others first in our lives, to be, to be servants to one another, to be sacrificial with one another, to be willing to, to, to carry one another's burdens and all that that means, God, knowing that at the end of the day, you will take care of us and our needs. And so God, bless us as we're gathered congregationally here on Sundays, Lord, and bless us as we move into this new season of, of smaller community groups, God, just like the early church as we gathered together in the temple congregationally and gathered together from home to home. Lord, that it would just be um, just this radical period of growth and maturity and blessing and that in our sincere hearts, God, we would just be people so full of you and the Holy Spirit that every day more and more would be added to the church. God, thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.